Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Our conversation of the day for alternative investment. Robert Prince has been at Bridgewater since 1986, including the joy of August of 1998. Too many things to talk about, including how out front he was at Davos a year ago on life at the zero bound. We speak with Bob Prince of Bridgewater this morning. Bob, I must ask you not about the specifics of Melvin or Citron and the others. That's inappropriate. But Bob, you and I know when you are short and there's the trade goes against you and there's derivative instruments involved, cash must be involved to cover the pain. Are we at a point this morning where a lot of cash and billions is going to be moved to cover up this hedge fund screw up? Well, the reason it's all happening is because there is a lot of cash out there moving. Yes. Uh, the, it's really been the printing of money by the central bank and the distribution by the, the government that's financed a lot of the activity and uh you know when you look at uh when you look at i can't comment on the, the games that are being played except to just say it's nice that the markets are kind of exciting these days and uh, things to talk about but you know our clients uh our clients want diversification they want boring and they want up so you know that's okay. somebody else's that's somebody else's world well come on bob you I, I i take your point but you've been in this game too long and i get the idea that the fed has provided a new viscosity for the system where there's liquidity and silly things happen the last time this happened in 98 you and i know it redounded over to major banks and to the major system are we at risk here with this foolishness that this will be something that folds over into global Wall Street and into our government institutions? Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think you, what you have are some isolated cases happening. Um, the financial system itself is not over leveraged as some of these prior cases that you refer to. And so the knock-on effects are much likely to be much more limited uh, through the system. You're, you're going to have, you obviously have big impacts on individual players, individual markets, but the system is very, very liquid, uh, plenty of capital in the banking system, and uh, not nearly as susceptible to that. I, I, I mean, clearly the pandemic was a bigger risk to the system than uh, you know, leverage trades in the options markets. So, and it, and the financial system has come through that really, really well. I'd love your assessment on the options market right now, Bob. There's been so much discussion over the last six months about the proliferation of commission-free platforms offering short-dated options to retail investors, and whether the tail, so to speak, is wagging the dog. But what's your assessment of that story at the moment? Well, it's, it just reflects the liquidity that exists and the new players in the markets. You know, historically, it's indicative of a bubble type environment, but, you know, it can go for a long time. I think that the, the uh, but when you look at the underlying root causes of it, it really is the transition of monetary policies to the printing of money from interest rate mi uh, driven monetary policy to what we call MP3, monetary policy three, which is the printing of money to buy government bonds to be distributed to people essentially in helicopter money. And then because they're not but because they're not spending it on goods and services, the money is going into financial assets. And I think from a from a from, you know our client base is really an institutional sovereign wealth fund, pension fund client base. 
And I think the, the, the lesson to be learned here, the thing to be thinking about, is you really have to question the idea of holding assets based on their market cap. Um, and uh, the whole, you know, CAPM based investment process, because, you know, just because the central bank goes out and prints money and buys bonds and drives the yield to zero and drives the price way up, does that mean you should hold more bonds because their, their market cap is higher? Or just because, you know, you, uh, a certain set of stocks is, is, uh, gets a flow of money into it one way or another, and now they're, uh, you know, X times higher the price than they were, does that mean you should hold that many, you know, five times more of it, you know? It doesn't really make any sense from an investor standpoint. And so um, I think that, you know, what we see is we see a, a big questioning around the world of really, how do you manage money? Do you, do you start with the market cap portfolio? It also brings indexing into question because when you're, when you're an indexer, you automatically get that and you automatically get it, uh, starting to get a much more unbalanced portfolio because the, 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 the narrow section of the market that some of these cash flows are going into is saying, well, you ought to hold more of that, right? And so, and it's reducing the diversification in your portfolio. So I actually think I'd go the other way. And I think that probably uh, we're, go we're moving into a world where security selection fundamental analysis are going to be, and security section fundamental analysis and a view toward real returns and wealth preservation over time is going to be a much, much, much more rewarding process. So Bob, there's two things you've really just painted there how the cycle has changed, how the policy regime has changed and what that means for capital allocation decisions. Lisa's going to want to jump in on the latter in just a moment. Can we just sit on how the cycle has changed just for a brief second? 12 months ago, we were sitting down in Davos together with Tom, myself and you in a freezing cold. And you talked about how the cycle, the nature of the cycle has changed. And the headline everyone ran away with is that Bob Prince says the boom bust cycle is done over. But it was so much more nuanced than that. Bob, can you walk me through how the character of the cycle has changed, how what we've seen recently backs that up and what that means for the policy regime we might be stuck in now? Right. Well, I was what I said was the the, the, the boom bust cycle as we know it is over. Right. And what I what I meant by that is the as we know it part is very important because, the, you know, the, the world that we all grew up in was a world of of booms and busts and tightening and easing a monetary policy largely governed by the interest rate changes by the central bank. And because of the debt levels and, and where we are and what we refer to as a long-term debt cycle, the ability to raise interest rates without causing problems is severely limited, but also the ability to create a boom and cut interest rates is severely limited. And so the, the, the management of an economy through interest rate changes and monetary policy, that's over. And we've transitioned into a world where it, it, the, the levers to be pulled is what we're seeing now, which is the printing of money, and it's the, it's the combined efforts of the fiscal government, uh, fiscal action with monetary action, the printing of money, the issuance of bonds, and then the government <clears throat> distributing that money through the economy as they choose, not based on free markets, where the interest rate is changing the, the economics of the flow of credit. Big change, and that came upon us, you know, much faster than we expected. But you know, we're we're in it right now. That's that's the world we're in. And I know that Ray Dalio, your colleague, uh, also about a year ago said cash is trash in this environment. The idea that cash is getting devalued in places like the United States is printing money. What is the trigger for that to actually be borne out? Oh, it's been borne out. Um, we have a massive wealth rebalancing going on right now in the world. Um, and there, there's a rebalancing between the, the Western Hemisphere and the Eastern Hemisphere in Asia. 
and there's a rebalancing between asset holders and debtors. And, uh, and part of that is what we're talking about. But uh, when you look at the, the return of cash, we have, math, we have massive wealth destruction going on right now for asset holders, uh, which to the, to the benefit of debtors to, to relieve those pressures on the debt side. Uh, it, we, we've already had a 15%. If you were a holder of T-bills or cash of some sort, uh, we've already had a 15% decline in your real purchasing power. Right on your assets and, and, and counting, right? Another 10 years and it's gonna be 30, 35%. Um, you look back through history, cash is one of the riskiest assets that you can hold through environments like this. You go back to the 30s and before, you had 50 and 80% drawdowns in your real purchasing power by holding cash. That's now spread to bonds, which locks it in. So among the most expensive assets in the world are cash and bonds, and they're destroying wealth through negative real returns. And that's fueling a movement of all of that liquidity into these other assets. And it's also fueling, it will be fueling a movement of money out of dollars. It's already begun into different areas, right? We've seen gold up. We've seen the dollar down against the euro 12%, down against the yen, down against the RMB. Money's moving. You see, the money's been printed in the country, and, and initially it stays in the country and drives the local assets up, and then it goes out of the country at some point because the yields and the currency are unattractive. So when you look at sovereign wealth funds around the world, where are they located? Not the United States. They're located in Asia. They're located in China, Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia. Um, that's where the money holders are. And um, for them to hold dollar assets is, is a risk position. So they're making 50, 100 basis points on their bonds and they're taking now so far a six to 12% loss on the currency. You know, are you gonna keep buying those bonds as the, as the treasury's issuing them? That's gonna put pressure on the Fed to buy the bonds. And now what happens if we get a pop in growth and a pop in inflation and the need to buy the bonds as the long rate is rising well, That's a dangerous situation for the dollar. Let's dig into one thing that you said, a pop in inflation. What you're talking about is dramatic asset price inflation, and yet we're not seeing inflation in goods and services that's commensurate with that. How long can that divergence happen? In other words, at what point does one check the other? Well, what, it, it, whether money printing causes inflation or not is simply a matter of where the money goes, right? And so, so far what's happened is the money that's been printed was used to augment uh, incomes that were lost. Uh, but, of, uh, uh, the, but the money that was distributed, uh, not all of it was spent. A lot of it was just socked away in bank accounts. And so there's been an explosion in bank deposits around the world and money market fund balances held at zero and negative real returns. Um, and so as a result, because the money's not moving into goods and services, the prices of goods and services are not going up. The money is moving into financial assets and you're getting inflation in asset prices where the money goes, but it's not going into all of them. It's just going into particular areas, which is amplifying the asset inflation in those particular markets. So the transition to inflation really, it's very simple. It has to be that that money that's been printed or, the, or sitting in bank accounts has to get redirected to goods and services. And when it does, it's just a matter of mechanics that if that outpaces the amount of supply, then the price goes up. So, Bob, let's put a bow on it. In 12 months of conversations between ourselves, the cycle has changed. The nature of the cycle has changed. We're in a new policy regime. The approach of the investor has got to change. 
away from 60-40, away from passive investing to market cap weighted indices. Let's talk about core positions, conviction trades in this market right now, Bob. What are they for you? Well, we see a lot of things that are very expensive and a lot of things that are very cheap around the world. Uh, and then you've got your strategic mix, right? And so the, 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 the most important thing is your strategic mix and to have it well balanced. And people are not nearly, uh, they don't have nearly enough geographic diversification. We're very, very big on balancing the portfolio between different, particularly between East and West, Asia, US and Europe, spreading that out. And so that's the first thing. This, from a tactical standpoint, uh, you know, you, like I said, you've got wealth destruction in developed currency uh, cash and bonds, the super expensive. And then you've got uh, a number of assets that are very cheap. You know, basically we just come out of an environment of an extreme economic environment with an extreme amount of liquidity produced. And that's produced a stretching and a divergence of assets. You'll get some degree of reversion in that. So we think we, think we favor uh, Asian assets a lot, you know, the, the assets, the currency, the bonds, the stocks, you know, just generally. Um, you know, assets over there, the, the rebalancing in the world is going that direction, but the, the pricing is actually in the other direction. If you look at the forward price of the RMB against the dollar, it's discounted to fall over the next 10 years by about 25, 30%, even though uh, Chinese growth is likely to be much stronger than the US. And if you look at relative earnings growth, it's likely it's discounted to be weaker. Now that's purely, a, that's not a matter of efficient market pricing, that's a matter of where the liquidity went. The liquidity went into US assets, right? And drove the interest rate down, which drives the forward currency down and so forth. Uh, but also you see a lot of emerging economies where the combination of a down in the economy and a contraction in liquidity has driven their currency down. It's driven uh, the spot currency down. It's driven the forward currency down relative to the spot because the interest rate differentials widen. And it's driven the equity uh, down relative to the bonds. And so if you take the 10 year forward value of, uh, of a, 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 let's say a, a Brazilian real or a Mexican peso, or you just pick your country, uh, uh, one year's worth of earnings 10 years from now priced in dollars, it's as cheap as it's been in 30, 30 years. So, you know, those are the kind of things that, that we see in terms of the stretching of uh, the pricing moving one direction while the fundamentals are gonna be moving in another direction. Well, fantastic to catch up on a longer term call. Bob Prince there of Bridgewater. Come back soon, Bob. Always good to catch up, sir. Thank you. Right now, away from GameStop is someone who does have to uh, deal with the volatility and the confidence of how our markets operate. Amaletti is at Wells Fargo Asset Management. For years, it's strong of Milwaukee at Wisconsin, and she joins us uh, this morning. Amaletti, I want to cut to the chase. How does short bubbles, delta, gamma vortex, how does that fold over to the confidence of conservative investors? Well, Tom, the, my main concern is that it actually hurts retail investors in the end, right? Institutional failures would not be good for the market in general, but the institutional players know what they're doing here. It's the retail investors that could end up getting hurt. And that's not good for our business long term. We want people to be, be comfortable investing, whether it's investing their own money or, or allowing us to help invest with the future of their money. And so that's what really concerns me about that for the long term. For the near term, it does create more volatility, um, but our, our managers are used to dealing with this. 
And it's fairly narrow right now, although I agree with a lot of the concerns that other people have that it, it I, I'm, I worry about the spread and I worry about the spread of it mostly because we've seen some of the broadest multiple expansion we have seen in the last two years. Well, expand on that, Anne. I mean, some people talking about how this could be the trigger for a consolidation that's more meaningful that a lot of people are looking for just by virtue of some of the stocks that uh, hedge funds have to sell in order to meet their uh, their leverage calls. What are you seeing in the market that's making you concerned that there could be some validity to that argument? Well, you know, what, it, what it really concerns me is just that we had a lot of narrow focus in the market during the really sharp recovery. So if you look at the S&P 500, Cornerstone Research put out a really good piece that talked about the earnings multiple increases that we've seen in the S&P 500. Now, that's a fairly you know, large cap focus fo- um, index. But what we saw there is that the multiple expansion actually took that index up 48% over the last two years. If you didn't have that multiple expansion, the market would have actually been down 3% over those last two years. So what really should matter right now is company fundamentals. Which companies can you know, play the dream out, can deliver on the dream? And certainly we're seeing some companies really can through earnings. We're seeing you know, Microsoft's numbers, we're going to see other companies that really are delivering on earnings, delivering on cash flow, delivering on strong balance sheets. That's what our fundamental investors, our portfolio managers are really focused on. Let's get to fundamentals right now. Um, guys, if you could get AMC Entertainment pre-market up just a casual, I've got it 245%. <laughs> Higher Tom. And for radio, it's a moonshot. Trading at 17. For TV, it is too. Started 2020 at about $7. Just think about that. Pre-pandemic, a theatre company <laughs> was trading at $7, and right now it's trading at 17 And for the people that get all riled up about the Federal Reserve, I think it's fair to say, Tom, this story is not possible <clears throat> without the Federal Reserve and what yep, they did. I... Nine months ago. I take your point, and it, frankly, as Mr. Prince alluded to, it goes over to what we're seeing with GameStop. It's you know the, I go back to the physics of it and maybe the chemical engineering of the, the, the viscosity of the system. And Maletti, how does this viscosity, all this money worldwide, change institutional investing? Do you get more growthy with your strong heritage, or do you really have to stay on some form of value? And to take it further, Anne, is it some form of new value trap? You know, Tom, I think you're onto something there. One, it's not either or. Certainly, there are growth stocks that are delivering on the fundamentals that I talked about earlier. Some of those technology stocks have the best growth rates, have the best cash flow. Um, they're, de- they're really delivering. But on the other side, we are seeing a global recovery happen. And that is good for kind of the value space, the smaller cap names, that the manufacturing numbers that we're seeing, all of that is coming through. So for us, it's thinking more broadly about the market and investing across the board, staying focused on that, not just picking one area, true diversification focused across the board. And then, Tom, I think you're right about the value space. It's different than it used to be. Um, Way back when I was investing early on, it was, you know, it was okay to invest in a company that was in decline as long as you understood the rate of decline. In this day and age, you really have to worry about secular challenges even more so. And great to get you on the program. Come back soon, please. And Maledi there of Wells Fargo Asset Management. 
Catherine Mann needs no introduction, global chief economist at Citigroup, and she owns the phrase codependency. Catherine Mann, we are all codependent now on this terrible pandemic. As John mentioned, it seems like the timeline is getting longer and longer. How does that adjust your economic view of the world and of America? Well, so, you know, we, we, in terms of our projections, we have a base where we don't get to herd immunity in the advanced economies until the end of the year. So end of this year. And so in our fundamentals, we all always have had a, a very long process to get from, you know, discovering a, vac- a set of vaccines to actually changing the economic uh, performance of the economies. The markets have tended to collapse all of the links in the chain. The, there's no problem with manufacturing. There's no problems with logistics of distribution. There's no problem with getting people to get vaccinated. There's no problem with changing a behavior. There's no problem with business investment responses. And there's no problem with opening those borders. The markets have taken all of those links in the chain, which we think are important and are going to delay uh, recovery until the end of the year, they have all collapsed those into one and done, you know, discover and everything is happening. Great. So when we see pullbacks in the market is because there is a realization that there are these links in the chain from getting a discovery of vaccines to actually changing economic performance. They're starting to realize that. Catherine, I'd love to get a little bit more nuance than that as well. Yeah. Just another headline coming from the Prime Minister in the UK, Boris Johnson, England aiming to reopen schools from March 8th. Yeah. So some of these restrictions will come off before we get to herd immunity. Do you draw yeah. a line in the sand as well? So if herd immunity for year end is what you anticipate, what about the restrictions being slowly removed as well? Well, so the restrictions that really matter are uh, consumer behaviour. Now, schools opening, that's certainly very important. That allows uh, some people to go back to work who have, who have not been able to, to go out of the house to work. Um, and so that will help. But until uh, people's behavior really feel comfortable to go back to doing the things that they used to do, uh, especially on the leisure, hospitality and tourism side, um, you know, that, that represents 10% of global GDP. And so, and it's basically uh, flatlined. So you're, you know, you've got some, you've got some work to do on that before, you get to the improvements in economic performance that we put into the end of the year. Well, if you looked at AMC stocks, you wouldn't necessarily have that feeling of people not going to the movie theater. Well, but they're not going, right? Well, they're not going. And this actually goes to a question that we were all talking about a couple minutes ago, this idea of to what end are we keeping some of these companies alive by having them get increasingly indebted, incurring debt for a bridge to the other side? Yes, at cheap rates, but with business models that are going to be challenged or at least that are going be changing in a post-pandemic world. What kind of employment are we preserving now? What is the longer term cost to employment and productivity? So this question about zombies has been out there for a long time. Uh, So the issue is uh, not so much employment, because, of course, they're not really employing a whole lot of people right now with uh, theaters being closed. Uh, So the question is, what happens next year? Not this year, because we're still going to be in a position of a lot of backstopping uh, of, of the uh, markets uh, from the Federal Reserve and, and from fiscal policy. But next year, uh, when things start to look um, more normal, at least we're assuming that the, that's the case, then you're going to have the hammer come down on some of those companies. And that will be creating turbulence for sure in financial markets. But the objective is, is when you get to the other side, you can handle that turbulence and you don't have to be uh, you know, holding up the zombies any longer. Catherine, always great to hear from you. Thank you. Catherine Mann there of City, the group's chief economist. 
Elaine Stokes does not own GameStock. She's at Luma <laughs> Sales uh, with their full discretion team. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. When you are fully discretion in a conservative shop like Luma Sales, a la 1998 and LTCM, do you, you watch out of the corner of your eye all this stuff going on with this loose money? Um, you got to watch a little bit more than just out of the corner of your eye. Um, you know, right now, all this craziness that, um, you know, that GameStop is, is uh, a, a function of, it's the sideshow, and we need to make sure it doesn't become the main event. And we don't see um, it become systemic. We don't see uh, it become the focus of regulators. And it, it, it doesn't blow up into something bigger right. because, of, because it's moved from retail to institutional. Who's the we? I mean, this is really important, folks. And Dennis Gartman earlier this morning on J.P. Morgan in 1907, or you've got, you know, this crisis in the 30s, or you've got 1998. Uh, Elaine, you're too young to remember 1998. But the bottom (laughs) line is, you know, as simple as I can, there's a we that's going to come save the day. For Elaine Stokes, who's the we? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I really understand what you mean here. Um, I don't think there's a we that's going to come save the day. I think there's uh, enough people are going to get hurt. Um, you know, this is a lot of retail money. Now it's becoming hedge fund, hedge fund money. Enough people are going to get hurt. And we, I hope that it, it peters out because enough people realize, you know what, there is no easy money. This isn't, um, there's a huge risk to what they're doing here. Um, so, Elaine, that I mean, you, happens. Yeah, go ahead. One could argue that some of the easy money and what's driving this is the Federal Reserve with their interest rate policy. What do you expect to hear from the Fed um, today and going forward? You know, nothing new. I, I don't <laughs> think today is going to be, you know, any big revelation. I think right now the Fed, actually, it's, it's time for the Fed to maybe sit back a little bit pass the baton to fiscal policy and let, let that take over for a little while. They've been trying to do that for some time, right? You know, we've been hearing that. Yep. And, you know, we've, we've got a, a new, a new um, package coming out, a third, a third package being discussed. I, I think it's, it's not their moment. So what are you expecting? What do you think this economy needs from Washington, D.C. in terms of fiscal stimulus? Uh, I really think it needs to, um, to do something. They've already done something quickly, right? And, and they need, there are certain things that just need to be extended. But beyond just extending things like unemployment and, um, and, and that, I think it needs to become more targeted. And oh. we're, we're, we've almost hit the point yeah. where we could kind of start to, to go overboard on the stimulus. Elaine Stokes, thank you so much for joining us with Luma Sales this morning. Greatly appreciate that. This is an important quote. Market risk and economic uncertainty have caught individual and institutional investors unaware. And throughout all of this, technology continues to revolutionize how people invest. That is Arthur Levitt, after August of 1998, 
when the young Arthur Levitt stood up with great courage and tried to steer our financial system out of LTCM and the rest of the fun of August 98. The former chairman joins us this morning. Arthur, I loved your essay. You're, you know, you're, you know, I don't know, you're 79 and holding whatever age you are. You could have written that sentence today, Arthur Levitt. Yes, yes. I think the lesson is how do we not repeat that experience as a dark comedy? And what I'm suggesting is uh, going after market rumor mongers aggressively, evaluating the science behind today's day trading platform, uh, improving the boilerplate. Yeah. I rarely read the legal boilerplate warnings on most of the items I buy and use. They, they're written to induce indifference. And if there's one thing we've seen, it's the fact that recency bias is a powerful force. Arthur, what, what that means is that yeah. recent market performance is an indication of what's coming up. Arthur, you more than anyone took us from Anaconda Copper 42 and 3 eighths down a quarter <laughs> to pennies. And the outcome of this is this massive internal, technologically sophisticated trading. Obviously, it has damages along the timeline. Do we need to go back to something that has a spread and has a quiet to it? Well, we lack precedence <clears throat> for an angry bubble. So predictions are probably pretty difficult. <clears throat> but there are enough similarities with the past to raise serious cause for concern. Uh, first, the little guys have had their success so far with the help of margin accounts and by using derivatives. That creates its own small Dutch tulip mania. Second, democratization of finance isn't new. And in itself, it's nothing that anyone can object to. The problem is that investment and financial planning require time. Yeah. So if you regulate these things and you, you no longer have true yeah. democratization, that creates issues and problems. Paul, Arthur, do you, what, do you what, see, what, Paul, do you see yep. how Arthur Levitt comes on and, and GameStop goes from 370 <laughs> down to 269 in a cup of coffee? It's, exactly it's, right. it's the Levitt yeah. impact. The voice of reason. Arthur, <laughs> what, do, what do you say to the folks that you know are just make, make the argument this is the free market. These people have free will to buy and sell whatever they want and you know, and just let the market take care of itself. And if they get burned, they get burned. It's kind of buyer beware. Well, <clears throat> you can say that they were warned. I can remember giving speeches through the late 90s, alerting the investment public to the risks of that time. And I'd say to them over the long haul, yes, investing is a wise path to building wealth. But over the short haul, it involves risks and losses, some of them quite crushing. Arthur, your great-grandson is sitting on the couch right now with your two dogs, day trading GameStop. Right. <laughs> Arthur, we got to this point where we got kids on laptops, multiple trades per second per hour. Do you see Gary Gensler having the ability to begin to nudge this back to something that's a social good? Yes, I do think so. 
this is all very familiar. Uh, I, so so familiar, are the New York Giants. <laughs> so familiar that I found a paragraph from a 1999 speech I gave at the National Press Club, and every word applies today. We as a nation, as investors, as yeah. businesses, and as regulators should not get manic Al. about the mania. Arthur Lovett, our honor to have you on air with us today with all we've seen. You, you me, and Paul are the only ones that remember <laughs> 1998. The former chairman of the Securities Exchange Commission, Bloomberg LP board member, Arthur uh, Lovett. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.